in the 19, oh, oh no, it's, I'm good. Can you hear me? All right. In the 1998 film Rush Hour, uh, Jackie Chan plays Hong Kong Inspector Lee, and uh, Chris Tucker plays an LAPD officer named Carter. Jackie Chan's character, Inspector Lee, is coming to the United States to help take care of a situation with uh, the Ch Chinese consul and help protect his family. And Carter, Officer Carter, is assigned basically to babysit Inspector Lee to keep him out of LAPD's way. So as Inspector Lee comes off the plane, Carter's there to meet him, and Carter doesn't know if this guy from Hong Kong speaks English or not, uh, but he's kind of a gregarious guy and just kind of leans in, greets him and says, hello, and then says, do you speak English? And Inspector Lee is kind of a cool character, just kind of, he's just observing. He does speak English, but he doesn't let that on for a while. Uh, so he can just kind of observe what's happening. But then Carter just leans in and he starts, you know, when he's not sure if uh, Inspector Lee understands English, he just starts speaking louder in English. Uh, and then gets to this point where he just leans in and says, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Uh, it's a, an iconic line from the film. It's one that my family repeats to each other every once in a while. Um, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? As we turn our attention to Isaiah 48, there's a theme in the chapter that God just keeps saying, listen, listen and obey. I have said, I have declared these things to you, Listen, listen and obey. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? You'll find the text on the screen. You'll also find it uh, in, on page 629 of the Pew Bibles. Um, this morning, we are going to explore Isaiah chapter 48. It kind of, it's a transitional chapter for us. It kind of concludes these chapters 40 through 47, where we've heard this legal argument where the Lord is kind of taking the people to court and, and saying, so we've, we've been talking about how the people are wrestling with their experience in exile. And starting to feel like, if, is God too weak? Is the God of Israel too weak to fight the nations and their gods. And so this chapters 40 through 47 have been this legal argument where God has de demonstrated again and again that he knows exactly what's going on and that he does have the power over the nations, over their gods, and over all things. But there's one lingering question. Maybe God is strong enough to overcome the idols and the powers of the nations but as we come to terms with our own sin and rebellion, is it just that our sin is too great for him to fix? And so chapter 48 helps address that question. God says, listen, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? So Isaiah chapter 48, we're going to use 
the closing verses from the, from the chapter as our text today, starting at verse 17. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you, who directs you in the way you should go. If, you, if only you had paid attention to my commands, your peace would have been like a river, your well-being like the waves of the sea. Your descendants would have been like the sand, your children like its numberless grains. Their name would never be blotted out nor destroyed from before me. Leave Babylon, flee from the Babylonians, announce this with shouts of joy and proclaim it. Send it out to the ends of the earth. Say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He, led, he made water flow for them from the rock. He split the rock and water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning and we thank you that you tell us the truth in your word. Truth that we are anxious and want to hear and truth that can be hard. And this chapter has both. But we pray that as we reflect on your word that you would speak to us and that you would take this ancient text and make it new and fresh as you apply it to our lives and the situations that we're facing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a message for the stubborn rebels. The first part of the message is summarized by this last verse in the text. There is no peace for the wicked. And as is my practice, we're going to use this text from these last few verses of the chapter, but we're going to jump around to see all the things that God has said and how they all fit together. But this is a message for stubborn rebels. God says there is no peace for the wicked. And typically, we would think of ourselves as a different category than the wicked, right? But as we look at our society and, and much of our own lives, we realize that there are lots of things that characterize our lives that, that don't look like peace. We're stressed out, we're fearful, short-tempered, and angry. Those things are the opposite of peace. So there's some sense in which we need to hear this word and say, even as God's people, as God spoke it to his people in ancient times, even as people who are identified as God's people, there are elements of what we're experiencing that suggest we are not fully sanctified before the Lord. That God isn't quite finished working that sin out in us. And the effects of that wickedness that we still experience is shaping a lot of our experience in this broken world. And so God calls to us and says, listen and obey. I have an important word for you. 
And kind of this truth is repeated for us in James chapter 3. So it's also echoed in the New Testament for God's people after they knew Jesus as well. James says, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. There is no peace for the wicked. So where we find, where we have envy and selfish ambition, we find disorder in every evil practice. James continues, he says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. And so we see in James these themes as well. There is no peace for the wicked, but this ministry of peace leads to righteousness. It leads to close relationship with the Lord, and it feeds out of that. So as we kind of jump around the chapter a little bit, uh, in verses 1 and 2, God says, Listen. And the word used in Hebrew for listen means listen and obey. The idea in Hebrew is that if you're not obeying what you heard, you're not listening. You may have heard it, but you're not listening unless you put it into practice. So God says, listen. People who use my name, but not sincerely, who claim to be citizens of the holy city, but who live addicted to the things and promises of this world instead of submissive to me. So God calls out to his ancient people, and I think there are important things for us to wrestle with from this message as well. Listen, people who use my name but not always sincerely. People who say you're citizens who belong to me, but you live like citizens of the world. In verse 4, God says you are stubborn. You're stiff-necked. Your, your necks are like iron and your heads are like bronze. You are hard-headed, stubborn, stiff-necked people. You think you know all this stuff. You know what you know and you'll trust yourself over trusting me. It can be difficult to deal with know-it-alls. Uh, sometimes my kids act like that, and I know that they perceive me to act like that. <laughs> um, when I was in third grade, my science teacher was Mr. Mazel. And at that point in my life, I was fascinated by science. Uh, this one experience helped change that a little. But... Um, <laughs> But Mr. Mazel was teaching us about volcanoes, and I was fascinated. I was just locked in. And so he was telling us all this stuff, and I was just sitting there. I can still picture the classroom and everything. I, I was sitting in my chair, and I was just like nodding, like, yes, that's so fascinating. Yes, yes. But Mr. Mazel had apparently had a bad day uh, or a bad experience with a student in another class, and somehow what I thought was just like, this learning posture that said, yes, keep telling me more. Yes, yes, yes. 
he perceived it as I was being a know-it-all, and he just stopped his lecture and said, Brian, do you know all this already? Would you like to come up into the front of the class and teach it for us? And I was even more shy then than I am now. And so I was just, I was like, no, I was just so interested in what you were saying. I, I'm sorry. And then I just, uh, yeah, so I just felt pretty ashamed. But the point, beyond the misunderstanding and miscommunication between myself and Mr. Mazel, is that it can be hard to deal with know-it-alls. God warns us about it. He says, you think you know all the truth, but there's still more for you to learn from me. Submit what you know to what I am telling you. Do you hear the words that are coming out of my mouth? Then in verse 8 of chapter 48, God refers to his people as treacherous, as, as traitors, betrayers, and as rebels from the beginning of time. As we reflect on our own lives and wrestle through our relationships with God, we tend to think of ourselves as being more faithful than the ancient people of God. And there may be some ways that that's true, but it's also important that the thing, it's important for us to recognize that the things that the ancient people of God wrestled with, much of that is just human condition. And we fall prey to the same temptations and the same struggles. So we know that they lived at a time when they hadn't seen the fulfillment of God's promises yet. And we know Jesus. And so it helps us put ourselves in a different category and feel safer. And I don't want us to feel unsafe because we are assured of our salvation in Jesus. But as much as God wants us to be assured of our salvation in Jesus, he does not want us to be complacent about our sin about the things that he still wants to work out and get out of our lives. The existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre said, you are your life and nothing else. And I think that quote helps us recognize the cold, hard reality of the law of God. Because we know that in Jesus we're forgiven. And so sometimes it makes us care a little bit less about the nooks and crannies that the law of God wants to creep into and expose the sin that's been hidden from other people and that we just kind of want to stay blind and numb to ourselves. But God's law wants to expose all of the darkness. The stuff that we've grown accustomed to in our lives and the stuff that we aren't aware of yet, and the stuff that we just want to keep hidden. God's law speaks to all of it. We are our lives and nothing else. As we stand before the Lord on our own, apart from being clothed in Christ, God's law is trying to expose all the darkness in us. And we don't want to become numb to that. 
We want to hear it. We want to let God do his work in us. Because it's always safe for God to do that work. When God reveals his, our sin, he wants to reveal it so that he can deal with it, so that he can bring us to himself, so that we can recognize how much we need him and how much he can accomplish. So we don't want to become numb to the law of the Lord just because we know Jesus fulfills it all on our behalf. Which leads us to the second part of this message. So it's all a message for stubborn rebels. But the first part is that there is no peace for the wicked. But the second is a message of hope. God says, I am your redeemer. Leave Babylon and return to me. God invites us to see him not only as the judge who knows all we've done wrong, but as our redeemer. He does, in fact, know how to deal with our sin. And we, at this point in history, can look back and know that Jesus came, the God of the universe, who's, who has power over all things, humbled himself to become part of his own creation so that he could lay his life down, sacrifice himself for us. That's how much our sin matters. That's how much we matter to God. That's how deeply he loves us. That he experienced the pain and the awfulness of being in this broken world. And not only just so he could observe it, but he took it on himself, our sin, and paid the penalty for it for us. It's critical for us to understand this truth. That the God who judges sin is also the God who rescues people from their sin. And it helps us correct this misunderstanding that we sometimes have about God's holiness and about his law. We often think people are divided into two categories. Bad and good. And the good people know they were bad, but now they recognize it and they do better. But what God tells us is something different. He tells us there are wicked people and redeemed people. That our righteousness always comes from Jesus and not because we did better. We are wicked. All humans are wicked. Some are redeemed. We've been made right through Jesus. Not by, own, not by our own works. Not by our own merit. But by the grace and mercy of God himself. And so sometimes, like we said, we hide from the law or we just kind of get numb to it, we get used to it, we get complacent because we know Jesus covers all our sin and so we just don't have to worry about that so much anymore. And sometimes 
we kind of subscribe to a weaker version of the law. We hear the law, but we hear it through this filter that says, I'm, I'm forgiven. So the deep inspection of the law, the bright shining light that exposes all the darkness, no longer applies to me. It just applies to other people who are not like me. We justify ourselves because we're no, we're, we know we're justified in Jesus. But that's not what the law does. The law never justifies us before the Lord. We are always only justified through Jesus. Our wickedness will never be fixed by us. It always will only be fixed by Jesus. And so, knowing the goodness of God helps us feel safe to let the light of his law exposed the sin in us, even as followers of Jesus. Because we want to be as close to Jesus as possible. We want to be close to the God who loves us and saves us. God declares for us that he's the one who knows what we need. He knows what's good for us. He declares those things, and as we walk with him, we experience good life-giving things. We experience peace. He says that he alone is trustworthy. He's our loving creator. And that when we follow and obey him, when we stay close to him, peace overflows in and around us like a river that carries us. It's life-giving to be with the God who saves us. And as we walk with him, we can endure hearing the hard, cold truth of the law and let, it ex- let him expose that in us because he's right there with us to say, I've taken care of that. So again, he wants us to be assured of our salvation and the forgiveness that comes through Jesus. But he doesn't want us to be complacent about our sin. He wants, to let the light of, he wants us to let the light of the law always expose the darkness in us because when it does, it turns us to him And when we see how great and mighty and merciful he is, it's life-giving. It draws us closer. It strengthens the bond that we have. And it unleashes his power in our lives. Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? In verses 5 through 7 of chapter 48, God says, In days long ago, I told you that all these hard things were going to happen. I told you about the exile. And I told you long before they came true, so that when they came true, you wouldn't be able to say, oh, it's just these idols that we worship, that we crafted with our own hands, that made these things happen. They're so strong. We were, our nation was overpowered by the powers of the world. No, I told you so long ago so that when these things happened, you would hear my voice echoing in your head and you would know, oh, God told us about this. But then in verse 7, God says, but now, now I'm telling you something new. I've never told you before. And in fact, it's not even an ancient truth. It's something I'm doing for you right now. So so as I tell you about it, you can't even act like Brian sitting in third grade science saying, yes, I know it all already. 
you can't say you've ever heard it before because I've never told anybody about this. It's a brand new thing I'm doing. So God calls out to his people and he says, you're stiff-necked, hard-headed. You've been rebels as long as you've been alive. But this is my plan for you. I'm going to rescue you from exile. Even as you ignore me in the exile, you've forgotten the words I've said to you. But I still care about you and I still want to bring you back. And so God describes in the middle section of chapter 48 this plan that he has with the emperor of Persia, Cyrus. And he doesn't name him, but he named him in an earlier chapter, so we know he's still talking about the same thing. He says, someone is going to come, my servant is going to come and defeat Babylon. And you're going to get to come to your homeland. Not because you suddenly figured it out in exile and have turned to me. You seem very content to live in Babylon. Sad about it, overwhelmed sometimes, but you seem to like it there. But still, I want you to be with me. So I'm going to bring in this other emperor who's going to defeat Babylon and you are going to come back to your homeland that I have established for you. Now we know that God is telling his people about this current event that's going to happen in the not so distant future within decades for them. But as he describes this plan, He's also talking about a greater servant. The Messiah who will come. Who will bring us, who will have the power to defeat Babylon and rescue us from our sin and our brokenness. And bring us to live at home with the Lord. He's also painting a picture of Jesus. And at our point in history, we get to look back at these ancient words through the lens of Jesus and see, oh, he wasn't only talking about Cyrus. He had an even greater plan, and it's for us. And we see now that it happened. He did exactly what he said he was going to do again. And so God says, leave Babylon behind. Leave the brokenness and the patterns of this world behind and come home to me. But there's this verse 21 that just kind of seems like it leapt out from crazy land. Like we don't have any, he's talking about all these sin problems and coming out of Babylon and all this stuff. And all of a sudden he starts talking about water coming out of a rock. But it's important for us to see that God is declaring, I am your redeemer. I am the creator of all things. I have command over nature. I have command over the nations. And you are my people called by my name. I am Yahweh, the God who is. The God who acts. The one who's over all things. And I am your redeemer. And he knows that he commanded the people to make their homes in Babylon. 
to live out their lives there. But to live in Babylon, not of Babylon. In the same way that he calls us and commands us to live in the world, but to not be entwined with it, to not become part of the world. God says, leave Babylon behind. Leave the brokenness of this world behind. The patterns, your destructive behaviors, your lack of faith, leave that behind and come to me. But God recognizes that it can be scary to leave the things that we know even when we don't like them. And so he recalls this situation with his people as they were leaving Exodus, as they were leaving exile in a time long ago. In the first Exodus when he brought his people up out of Egypt and they were wandering through the wilderness. And it took very short amount of time for them to go from celebrating being out of slavery to being overwhelmed because in the last 400 years they had not developed skills to know how to care for themselves it wasn't great being a slave but somebody brought their food to them and told them what they could eat and now they're wandering through the wilderness and they're like I'm getting hungry but I've never had to provide my own food for myself I don't know what to do. Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt? It would have been better for us to be in slavery than to die in the desert. And then they got thirsty. They thought, this is a dry and arid place. How are we ever going to get the water that we need? So verse 21 helps remind the people that when they were wandering through the wilderness centuries ago, God didn't even bring them to a river. He didn't even provide their water in a way that made sense to them, that they could have predicted. Instead, they cracked a rock and water gushed out. And it was enough to provide for their needs. God says, you feel overwhelmed by these habits in your lives. You've started to think of yourself is identifying with some of these patterns in your life. And it can be scary to let that go. But just know that like I provided for my people long ago as they were wandering through the wilderness, through the deserts, and I provided water out of a rock, I have ways to take care of you, even when it's scary, even when you don't know how it's going to happen. But I will be with you. You will be my people and I will be your God. And I will walk with you every scary moment of this journey to leave the brokenness of this world and come home to me. In a silly little but practical example. Some of you know I'm kind of a serious, boring guy. Um, I like to make fun of things and whatever, and I, I... I need humor in my life because I am so serious and dull. But, um, well, I don't know if that's totally fair. But um, God made me, and he loves me the way I am. So, but, uh, but there are things he still wants to correct. Uh, so, um, I used to use sarcasm 
And I still do at times. I can be a sarcastic guy. I've got a critical spirit, and it's fun to use that and twist it into humor. Um, but there was this time in my life where sarcasm and just ripping on the people I liked who were in my group uh, was the way that I made light of situations and got people to laugh, and then it felt good. And then I started dating this woman named Chris. And I did the same thing to her. And she was like, I don't like it when you make fun of me in front of other people. I was like, oh, I love you, honey. I'm just making jokes. Well, it doesn't feel like a joke. It doesn't feel funny. And I was like, how can you expect me to let go of the one tool I have to be fun and cool? But for you, honey, I'll try. So like I said, I still have sarcasm in me. I don't often use it at the expense of other people anymore. Um, it was a scary thing to let go of. And it feels silly now. Like, just making fun of other people shouldn't have been a high value for me, right? But it's fascinating to know how Babylon affects us. How we get attached to things that are just brokenness in the world. And we think we need them in order to make sense of our own lives. And so it can be scary to let go of those things. But God says, I've got you. I provided water in the desert out of a rock. And if I did that, I'll be with you to provide what you need to. Leave Babylon. Come be with me. I am your redeemer. And I love you. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today and uh, we may be wrestling with lots of things. There are hard things that you want us to pay attention to in this text and in our lives. But you invite us to pay attention to those things in the context of knowing that we're safe in you because you made us on purpose and you love us. And you alone can redeem us and set us free. So we pray that you would make that enough for us, that you would grow our faith, that you would hold us tight, that you would sustain us Because you are the one true God. And we desire to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen.